Hello, uh, you join us on uh, week four of a sermon series. We're entitling The Joy of Being God. And we're spending a whole term looking at the fact that God is very joyful. And over the past few weeks, we've seen God's joy in his act of creation in Genesis 1. We've seen him, his joy, at the joy, uh, joy in working, his joy in resting. And we've seen his joy in making the world that in each day he says, this is good. And this is very good when he creates humanity. But we don't get a full picture, however, without grasping the fact that God said one thing was not good. And we read that in Genesis 2, verse 18. Now, Genesis 2 retells the story of creation, providing some more details for the story, including how God created humanity. And we read there how God created this beautiful garden in the middle of his creation. This paradise is what we call Eden, and into that God places the first man, Adam. And then after giving Adam some boundaries for his new life, he declares over him, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Now, you, you might right now have a wonderful community around you, and you might currently have some of your best, most amazing, healthiest friendships you've ever had. You've got a great group of friends around you. But I also know that won't be all of us. Uh, for many of us, we would recognize that we don't have the community and we don't have the friendships that we would like. And actually, if we're being honest, we would probably say we're pretty lonely. And even if you have lots of acquaintances, uh, we can lack people in our lives who we can be truly honest and open with. If this feels like you, then you are not the only one. Uh, there are some absolutely shocking statistics actually around uh, loneliness. Um, here are some compiled uh, by the BBC a few years ago that would suggest about a quarter of Londoners will feel lonely often or all of the time. Uh, a similar proportion of people would say that there is uh, little or no sense of community in their part of London. Uh, a third of people couldn't even name one of their neighbours. Uh, a recent study by a charity called uh, Campaign to End Loneliness found that for two-fifths of old, uh, elderly people within this country, so that's 3.9 million people, they would view the TV as their main source of company. And there's also increasing research that shows uh, that loneliness and social isolation have health impacts for us. They are harmful to our health. Uh, one study estimates that being lonely, having a lack of good, healthy social connections, is as damaging to your health as smoking 15 packets of cigarettes a day. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, these stats show that we live in an increasingly uh, fragmented and individualistic, lonely society. It was uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta who called loneliness the great poverty of the Western world. And let's be honest, finding community can be really hard sometimes. And if you're resonating with this sense of loneliness, then I have some fantastic news to share with you today. That our God is not a lonely God, and he never was. God finds deep joy in himself. And that it's out of this love that he created everything. And then we are called to reflect him, for we are made in his image. And he welcomes us into his family. Now today we are looking at the joy of friendship. And I'd like to take us on a journey of looking at the nature of God himself to see that friendship is not just something that he offers us, but it is also an essential part of who he is and that he finds deep, deep joy in it. 
And we'll look at how we can apply this truth into our church community, um, but also into our friendships. And as I start, I'd just like to give a few uh, book plugs for books that have really shaped my thinking on this topic. So if you want to delve in deeper, here are some brilliant ones I would recommend to you. Uh, The Good God by Mike Reeves, The Listening Life by Adam McHugh, and Simplify by Bill Hybels. These are fantastic books to get your teeth into. But our launch pad for our service, uh, for our, this talk today is Genesis 1, 26 uh, to 27. And we read there when God says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, uh, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here we read of the moment in the story where God creates humanity in his image. And both of these verses point us towards an astonishing truth about who God is. For they point us towards not a plurality of gods, but a plurality within God. They point us to what Christian theologians have termed the Trinitarian nature of God. Now I reckon the Trinity is Christian jargon par excellence. Uh, It can be summed up easily enough. So we can say that there is one God who has existed eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is that God is one in essence, but three in person. But I wonder what your reaction to this is. I think sometimes we can approach the, uh, the Trinity a bit like, okay, here I have the God I know and love. And then over there, very, very far away, in some academic mental ivory tower, over there, that's where all the Trinity stuff is. It's like a mathematical uh, mystery, a, a mind-bending oddity, a conundrum that seems to be surrounded by this impenetrable theological haze we can almost consider it an unknowable mystery. And that if the Trinity is a mystery, then kind of why bother even understanding it? And I think it's really easy to be embarrassed by this idea, isn't it? This this sense of trying to explain it to our friends. I wonder, have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to one of your friends and got stuck? I know I have. And I've heard people offer like supposedly helpful illustrations to help us negotiate the theological minefield that is the Trinity. I wonder if you've ever heard of any of these, uh, that God is like this three, um, three-part leaf, um, three parts but one whole, or that he's like uh, steam, water, and ice, that somehow these have three different forms but they're part of the same thing, or about an egg, so with the white, the yolk, and the shell, three parts but one whole. And I don't know about you, but these can kind of leave me feeling our God is kind of a bit bizarre. I mean, can you imagine God um, in his eternal throne room, surrounded by his fiery glory and thousands of worshiping angels in awe and wonder, where he says and declares before all of them, I have decided what I will place amongst my creation that will perfectly capture the glory of my essence. Behold, an egg. Like, doesn't that just seem bizarre to you? Like, no wonder we can be embarrassed by trying to explain the Trinity. I mean, our God is like an egg. But thankfully, we believe in something that's far, far deeper, far more thrilling, far more beautiful and glorious than that. And to help explain it, uh, we're going to dive into uh, 1 John first. So if you want to turn with me there, we're going to look at uh, 1 John 4, verses 7 uh, to 11. Let me uh, read um, these verses to you, and they'll be on the screen for you as well. 
So it starts in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has loved us, has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now those last three words in verse eight form one of the most profound statements in the whole of the Bible. I've highlighted them here. God is love. And here, John is not identifying a, a, a quality that God possesses. He is making a statement actually about the essence of God's being. Not simply that God loves, but that he is love. Now, and only understanding God as Trinity, so understanding God as uh, one in essence but three in person, can make sense of such a statement, God is love. True, we shall never be able to comprehend uh, the full meaning of this phrase with our finite minds. But at least we can grasp the heart of God's very being, that there is this dynamic relationship of love that love flows between the three persons of the Trinity in a, in a constant interaction, so that every activity that God does expresses the love which is the divine nature. God the Father loves God the Son, and God the Son loves God the Father, and the Holy Spirit loves both of them, and so on and so on. This is not a static description, but a living dynamic uh, activity within the Godhead. And this dynamic is seen every time we see God act in the Bible, in creation, in salvation, through Jesus' death and resurrection. And we see it at the baptism of Jesus right at the start of his ministry. It's a useful example for us to look at. And there, God the Father declares his love for God the Son and his pleasure in him as the Spirit comes and rests on the Son in the form of a dove. So the Spirit is the one who makes the love of the Father known, causing the Son to cry, Abba, Father. Thus Jesus is the anointed one. For the Father loves and blesses and empowers him through the anointing of his Spirit. God is essentially community and distinctly relational. God is love. And love isn't something that God has learned or something that he lacked before he created everything. Instead, love lies right at the heart of the deep joy God has in being himself. So God is love because God is Trinity. Because for all of eternity, God has been giving out, uh, positively bursting with love. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this thought of God is love, I find it so much more satisfying than think my God is like an egg. It just satisfies me in here. And to help us see why the Trinitarian nature of God is so important, I'd like to take us through uh, just a very short exercise. We'll compare a one-person, one-being God with the Trinitarian God of the Bible. And we're going to do it through asking a series of questions. So the first one here is, well, what were they doing before creation? Well, with a one-person, one-being God, they were all alone by themselves. The Trinitarian God... Hey, they were loving, giving, enjoying, and celebrating being part of one another. What would their motivation be for creation? 
Well, would it be worshipping slaves for a one being one person, God? Because they don't need anything else. They don't want anything else. It's they are self-sufficient by themselves. Whereas with the Trinitarian God, we see that creation becomes an overflow of their love. How about the implications then for their relationship with us as humanity? Would they be one person, one being God, would be content by themselves that they don't want to love us? But we find with a Trinitarian God that God longs to know us and to share himself with us. And this is exactly what we see in 1 John 4. This is exactly the God that is revealed to us, a God who longs to share himself with us. I wonder if you saw that in these verses, verses 9 and 10, that when we read that God is love, we read that this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might, love, uh, we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So this is how God has shown his love for us, that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, that he would come and die for us that we could be united with God, that we could be brought into relationship with him, and that through him that we might have life and peace and mercy and righteousness and love and deep, deep, deep joy. I'd like to just draw your attention to this word atoning in verse 10. Uh, we might be used to using it in its longer form, atonement. And the best way of understanding it is to break it down and literally means at one moment. And it's all about bringing back together a reconciling, a, a uniting. And by using it here, uh, John is saying that because of Jesus' sacrifice, that we can join the family of God, Father, Son, Spirit, us. Note as well, let's not miss the pluralized language of these verses and see how John is talking about all of us, not just us as individuals. See them here that this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the amazing thing is that Jesus' death doesn't just unite us with God, but actually unites us with each other as well. And this is such an important truth for us to grasp hold of. How important it is for us in the middle of our increasingly fragmented, individualistic and lonely society, to grasp that God is the one who draws us together into one people. I think it's really easy for us to impoverish this good news about the glory of the happy God if we only consider it in terms of personal salvation. Now it's true that each of us does have a personal relationship with God and we're all on an individual journey with him but we cannot isolate ourselves from God's big story of calling a whole people back to himself. So while it is true to say that Jesus is my savior or Jesus is your savior, how much better is it to say that Jesus is our savior? Now we were created to be with God and to be like God. So we were made for community. And this is exactly the application that we see that John points us to as well in John, uh, 1 John 4, 11, where he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Let's just quickly return to that exercise about comparing a one uh, person, one being deity with a Trinitarian God at the Bible and ask how we could best reflect this deity. Uh, 
Well, one person, one being God, surely we can best reflect it in trying to all be the same, a uniformity. Could we also best reflect it in a self-obsession? If it's all about this oneness, surely it's all about me. But with this Trinitarian God, we see given to us a love of diversity and community, a community that is welcoming and loving. And to illustrate this, um, let's just look at one of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible that helps us see how we are drawn together in a community, in a diverse community that is welcoming and loving. And it's in uh, Colossians 3, verse 11. And there Paul says that there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now let's just break that down for a moment. There is no Gentile or Jew. Well, that's about race. At circumcised or uncircumcised, that's religious attainment, isn't it? A barbarian is about behavior, a culture. At Scythian, now these were a group of people that lived right on the furthest outreaches of the Roman Empire, sort of beyond the beyond. So here we are seeing this breakdown of geography as well, no matter how far away you live. Slave or free is all about social status. No, but Christ is all and is in all. So any barrier you care to name between people, anything that you want to put up that might divide people, building up walls, whatever you can do, they all come tumbling down in the unity that Jesus gifts to us. And this is unity in diversity, not uniformity. We are all very, very different. Now, think of uh, the regular stories that uh, appear in our media about uh, the racial uniformity, say that it's the vision of uh, white supremacy, and the hatred that lies at its heart. Or or think about the cultural and uh, religious uniformity that Islamic terrorism wants to impose on the world, and the violence then that that inflicts on the innocent. When we lose sight of a Trinitarian God who loves unity and diversity, it is so easy for us to pursue uniformity instead. But when we reflect him, our communities become places that embrace difference and diversity in uniting in and replicating our God's welcome, his other-focused and sacrificial love for the other. Now, what an amazing vision for community and the vision that we are called to be part of together as God's people that being part of the body of Christ, the children of the Father, the beloved of the Holy Spirit, that does not mean that we are all the same. Like we just, we're not. We think differently, we experience uh, feelings differently, we have different experiences and perspectives. We vote in elections differently. Uh, We read the Bible in different ways. We can even understand God differently. But our goal is unity, not uniformity. Our goal is genuine community, not artificial conformity. And this means that we will disagree, and sometimes bitterly. But what bonds us together is love. So let's drill down into some applications for us. Because this is far from theoretical. Let's not just keep it in an ivory tower over there. But this is a truth that we can apply together as a church. And we're going to look at two passages for that on how we can draw applications into our church community. And that's from 1 Corinthians 12. And then we're going to look at applications for our friendships from John 15. So let's head to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 uh, first. And in this chapter, uh, Paul is uh, writing uh, this uh, a letter to the church in Corinth. And he's using an illustration of a human body to talk about the fact that we are all one in Christ, but that we all have a unique role to play. And he starts here in verse 12 where he says, Just as one body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts for one body, so it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized into one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. From these verses, Paul then goes and talks about two errors that we can fall into when we consider our own roles in the body. Uh, the first one he points to is saying, well, wouldn't it be odd of a foot to say, like, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, or for the eye to say, because I'm not an ear, I don't belong. Like, Paul rightly says, if, if the whole body were an eye, like, it would not function as a whole body. Like, where would the uh, sense of smell be? Or he looks at it the other way, like, how can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you? Like, how would uh, the body function if each bit was isolated from all of the rest? Now, these are the two areas that we can fall into too, either feeling superior or inferior. So either a kind of sense of, like, I don't have the gifts, so I'm not needed here. Or if, if only I had that person, if only I had their personality, I would be of use to this church. Or we can go to the other extreme of, do you know what? I could have preached that sermon or sung that song or led that meeting or helped that person much better if only they were more like me. How easy it is for us to fall into both traps. And Paul's point is this. For a body to function properly, each part of it has a role to play. No matter how insignificant, no matter how unseen, no matter how small the contribution, each part is needed for the whole uh, to function properly. And as Paul says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you has a part to play. Like in other words, what he's saying here is our community is poorer if you're not part of it. It's important for us to hear this, that our community is poorer if each of us doesn't play our own unique role and bring our own contribution to it. And the climax of these few verses is in uh, verses 29 and 30, in which Paul asks a series of questions in which the rising answer, just like Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody, to the answer to the question, will, will you let me go, is no, 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 no. Have those voices in mind as I read these questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Uh, do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No, 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 no. We each have our own role to play. And so if we are going to reflect God and practice unity and diversity, then we need you to be you. We need to br you to bring your own unique mix of who you are and your gifts, your talents, your experiences, your personality. We need you to bring that for this body to function as it would. So that's our church community. We need you to be you. Let's turn our attention to our friendships. And so please turn with me to uh, John 15, verses 9 to 15. And I'm going to read these verses to you. And they, they're taken um, in the middle of a, 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 in the context of a conversation that Jesus is having with some of the, his closest uh, disciples. And it's a, after a fascinating sort of to and fro over a couple of questions, uh, Jesus says to his disciples these famous words, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And then he says uh, the following. We read from verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you have kept my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my, fri you are my friends if you do what I command. 
I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learnt from the Father, I have made known to you. Now, at home in here on this long passage in verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for one's friends. Now, what I find amazing about these verses is that Jesus, in searching for an illustration to express something of the greatest love that two humans can show for each other, he doesn't look to romantic relationships. He doesn't look towards uh, marriage. He doesn't look towards the passion that exists between lovers or the deep bonds between family members. No, he looks to friendships. Greater love has no one than this than he should lay down his life for one's friends. Now, friendships are fascinating things, uh, partly because they are so difficult to describe, uh, especially beyond uh, just well-known platitudes. This, this is because friendships are unpredictable. Uh, friendships are almost impossible to describe because they are as unique and singular as the two individual people that are involved in them. Uh, no two people are the same. And friendships are fascinating because of their level of commitment. It's a commitment into the unknown. But because by doing life with others, we open up ourselves to be changed by them. And this is part of the inherent adventure, inherent adventure that is part of friendships. Now, and when considering the depth of friendships that exists in marriage, I think the philosopher, this guy, Alain de Botin, is right when he says this. The marriage ceremony is a couple making hopeful vows on behalf of two people they don't yet know. And what he says of our marriage vows in ceremonies, I think can be true of any of our friendships. When we commit to each other and to love one another, actually we change one another. And friendships are fascinating things, and they are clearly held in very high honor by Jesus. And we also know they are really difficult to get right. So let's just look at a number of features of uh, uh, friendships that Jesus models for us with his disciples. Uh, let's look together at how we can develop this here at Everyday Church. Firstly, we see Jesus and his, and his disciples make regular space for each other. And not only do the disciples leave their occupations to follow Jesus, actually we find them regularly making space for each other throughout the Gospels. They're away from the crowds, having meals together, spending quality time together, praying for each other. And from time to time, it's, it's worth us considering how, much, how, how well we're doing this as well. How much space are we leaving for friendships in our lives? Because it's so easy for the busyness of life to fill up that friendships become the first thing just to fall down our priority list. Now consider for a moment an apple tree. Now here's one from my uh, grandfather's uh, um, garden. Now he will tell you the only way of getting uh, an apple tree um, like this, as big as this, uh, the only way to get it to produce great apples is to prune it. Uh, you've got to cut away some of the branches so that the air and so that the light can get in, so that the fruit can grow large and healthy. And so here's a challenge for you from my granddad's garden. Uh, what might you need to stop or amend to create space in your life for your friends or for new ones? Write that question down. Think about it uh, in, in your own time after this service. Uh, apply it. What might you need to stop to create space for friends? Uh, secondly, we notice that Jesus and the disciples, uh, when they do hang out, uh, we see them having this uh, vulnerability with each other. 
Uh, here in John 15, we, we see them in, a, in the middle of a conversation talking about massive topics and asking some really honest questions. And vulnerability is all about us taking off our masks with each other. And so it's worth pausing on this one, I think, because it's really hard for us to do. It can be really hard for us to share our struggles and our dreams, to admit that we don't have it all together. Uh, we can be keen to form a community and friendships right up until that point that it demands something from us, like our honesty. I think this is one of the big issues of our time. Uh, we live in increasingly self curated worlds. We are uh, the Facebook, Twitter, and Netflix uh, generation. And if we're not careful, we can let that affect the way that we see ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think uh, social media is like a bad thing. No, it's, it's brilliant. But if we're not careful, we can let it deeply affect us. Uh, we can spend hours scrolling through our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter free feeds, seeing all the different things our friends are up to, all their amazing holidays and the events they go to, the things they are doing, the other people that they hang out with, uh, the pictures of their latest grandchild. And we rate each other by them, don't we? And we kind of think that likewise, we need to create a profile that shows us our best. On Facebook, we like to see how fun and social we are. On Twitter, how interesting we are. You can follow me at Andy G. Tuck. Or uh, on Instagram, how creative we are. Uh, LinkedIn, how employable we are. And then we compare our worst to other people's curated best. So that it's so easy for us to feel second rate, isn't it? To feel that we too need to present uh, a world, to the world a different image of who we truly are. Otherwise, people won't like us. Vulnerability is hard. But can I encourage us? The only way that we can develop deep relationships, deep friendships, is if we're honest with others and each other. Now, being vulnerable is uh, and can be really difficult if you've been hurt in the past. Uh, and if you have been, then you're probably listening to my words with a, a bit of a degree of skepticism. And I'll admit they're certainly optimistic, but I believe that it reflects the biblical hope that we are called to hold on to. Authenticity takes time and trust. So let's be intentional about the community that we want to build together. Uh, thirdly and lastly, uh, we see that um, there's a real need to show initiative in forming, act, um, forming friendships and activities really help us. Uh, we see this in the touring ministry that Jesus had with his disciples as they traveled around ancient Israel together, uh, teaching, and, uh, teaching and ministering uh, to many. Shared adventure is a friendship accelerator. Um, but showing initiatives as well in friendships can be hard, and particularly, particularly for us men. And one of the interesting things that um, has come out of uh, the research on these loneliness studies that we looked at at the beginning, uh, was the trend that some researchers noticed in photographs taken of people interacting. So typically, when female friends are talking to each other, they do it face to face. But when guys do it, they're typically standing side by side, sort of gazing out on the world together. Um, the best life group, to be honest, that I've ever been part of was in my last church called Christ Church London, and we started a group for those of us that loved uh, outdoor pursuits. Uh, here's a bunch of us on, on, from, taken from a holiday we went to in Scotland, climbing mountains. And so regular bouldering and country walks and mountain climbing helped us form really strong bonds. And it would seem that men, much more than women, need an activity um, to help us keep together and to make and keep strong bonds. We need to go through something together. 
And that's why studies have shown that men tend to make their deepest friendships through periods of intense engagement. So like when you're at school or in the military or part of a sports team, that's where most of us feel comfortable. Now this is only a trend, and of course we all, we all love doing things, uh, both men and women, but particularly men, pay attention, this is particularly hard for us. Uh, a really good starting point of how you can do this in uh, everyday church is how about try committing to uh, a life group. Uh, they are a great way for us to regularly spend time together, to go on a joint adventure together. So um, let's pursue friendships together. Let's uh, make space uh, for one another, being vulnerable together, uh, taking initiative, and uh, having a laugh together on going on a shared adventure. And let us then, in our lives and our friendships, model our Trinitarian God, in whom we are welcomed into deep, deep joy, and in whom we have unity in the midst of all of our diversity. Jesus declared, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. That is to love one another. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father I have made known to you. What a joy then comes to us in considering that we ourselves are friends of God all because of what he has done for us. Uh, Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you call us friends and thank you that you give us a model for all of our friendships. Uh, Just as you gave yourself for us, help us to give ourselves to each other. Help us to create a community of hope and healing for many that um, together we can uh, flourish together. Father, would you knit our hearts together in unity and love. Help us to be true friends to each other as we learn to be vulnerable with one another. Help us to share our dreams as well as our struggles, that we would grow together to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this for your glory and in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.